Merry Christmas, everybody. Welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. We're here on, is it the 22nd, I believe, a couple days out from the big one. That's right. We're in full Yuletide mode. How are you doing, Dan? Come in and know me better, man. I'm doing pretty well. Are you making rather merry over there on your side of the mic? Just a little bit. So, yeah. Uh, What about yourself? How are you doing, Brian? Hey, pretty good. Got a couple days off for Christmas, and uh, it should be fun. And we're gathered together tonight for episode number 65 of The Goods. Our selection this time around is a Muppet peripheral, Muppet-adjacent Christmas special from 1977 brought to us by Jim Henson and his Muppeteer team. It's called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. So, had you had any previous exposure to this one, Dan? Nope, I had only heard of it, stuff that you had previously written. You had you used to do holiday-themed countdowns on first Facebook and then our old blog, earnthis.net. And I had seen it mentioned there before, but that was literally the only thing I knew about it prior to this week. Right, so this has always been one in the Christmas VHS box and later Christmas DVDs. I guess my mom tuned into the original broadcast of this back when it was on HBO. I was kind of interested to see that it was like a Canadian co-production, and it first aired on the uh, Canadian Broadcasting Channel, the CBC, in December 1977, and then the subsequent year, December 1978, on HBO in America. Which, the reason that stuck out to me is because Rich Little's Christmas Carol debuted on the CBC in 1978, and then in America on uh, HBO in 1979. So it was like the follow-up in some ways, the spiritual successor. (laughs) I guess you could call it that. I wouldn't call it that, but I guess you could call it that. (laughs) No other connection other than they aired on the same channel and they were both Christmas specials. But to me, that feels significant. I thought the connection you were going to make is that the other Jim Henson connected project we watched was Turkey Hollow. And that was a production in Canada with a lot of Canadian actors, even though that aired on, I think, Showtime, not CBC. No, it's good to bring that up because tonight's selection... I intend to serve as a little bit of a counterpoint to Turkey Hollow or just to show like what a Jim Henson production was when the man was actually alive, not 25 years out. Interestingly, I think there like are some shared connective threads and creative tissue, I thought, a little bit. Yeah, not as many as I was expecting, but there's certainly some. This features a lot of the standard retinue of Muppet performers on the making of featurette. It called them a repertory company, which is a good term that I hadn't associated with the group before, but that really is what it is. It's like six actors and performers, puppeteers, who are always the main dudes shuffled through the deck, popping up in a bunch of different roles. And, you know, they'll have other people um, helping out 
and supporting, but it tends to be this central crew, almost like Monty Python or something. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's kind of like in The Simpsons, you hear a new character and you immediately know that that character sounds like other characters. I'm not sharp enough where I can immediately point to the actor itself. But I'll be like, okay, this is definitely one of like Dan Castellanata or one of whatever the recurring people are. It's one of them. And the same thing here, whenever a character would speak, I'd be like, okay, that's the same voice actor of one of the Muppets. I'm not sharp enough on my Muppets to be able to say which one it is, or even at this moment, sharp enough to say which one it sounds like, but it definitely sounds like a Muppet. Exactly. And sharp on my Muppets might be a good episode title. (laughs) Here at The Goods, we aim to make you sharp on your Muppets. Just as a bit of background where this fits in on the Muppet timeline. So the Muppets first appeared in a short series that Henson made. Uh, I just learned today that it was on local DC-based television. It was called Sam and Friends. Uh, Sam and Friends, not Sam and Friends. Like, not the fish. Right. But this was on from 1955 to 1961. It was made up of little shorts, like five-minute sketches, and featured the debut of Kermit the Frog. Then, throughout the 60s, uh, some of the Muppet characters made appearances on talk shows. Uh, Especially, they were popularized on Ed Sullivan. Then in 1969, Henson got involved with the creation of Sesame Street and brought Muppet characters to that production and so became more involved in the the ongoing production of a TV series. In 1975, they had a recurring segment on the first season of Saturday Night Live. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, I've never seen this. It's It seems like a really strange concept to me. I guess in some ways SNL is still a variety show, like they have the bands and stuff, but I, I think this may have been part of like an earlier concept for it where it was a little bit more hodgepodge. But that was the first appearance of Gonzo, actually, the, the first use of the Gonzo puppet. Charles Dickens, you mean? Oh, yes. And then in 1976, they uh, got their own flagship show, The Muppet Show. Uh, which was full variety show, a lot of like m- music performances, and each episode would feature a central guest star, and usually the the humor and the subjects of the episode skits would kind of tie into whatever the performer's shtick was. Like uh, you know, you could have a Vincent Price episode or a John Denver episode or a Mum and Shantz episode starring a different puppet troupe, like a Cirque du Soleil type performance art group. A lot of different styles and some really cool stuff in the muppet show then this one remember emmett otter's jug band christmas to bring us back on track this one came out in 1977 the first muppet movie was in 1979 and in some of the material this was the first time i watched a lot of the like behind the scenes stuff on the dvd uh, because for years i mostly just watched this on a videotape over and over but they talked about this being almost like a dress rehearsal, a dry run, a practice run for some of the stuff that would go into the Muppet movie. Okay, yeah, I can see that. It's, it's kind of got a, a smaller scope to it here. Got just fewer settings and fewer puppets. Right, but it's got the same writer who would go on to do the movie. That's Jerry Jewell. 
and it's got the same songwriter Paul Williams and pretty much all the all the Muppet pieces were in place at this point. The special was based on a book, a children's book by Russell and Lillian Hoban. The book, I guess, came out in 1971, so six years before the TV special. Have you read the book? No, I never have. Did you look into this at all? I did. I acquired the book this week. Oh, man. did you Have you read it yet? I did, yeah. So how would you say it is as an adaptation? What, what were your takeaways from the... Yeah, we'll talk more about it, but it's a really loyal adaptation. Really faithful. Um, so I'm really into kids' books, picture books, because I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I kind of made it, it my obsession to, to find the most interesting and best picture books to read to my girls and acquire way, way too many of them. I mean, Brian can tell you he was at my house last weekend. You walk in my house, it's books everywhere. Yeah, Dan, I... Don't say you have a children's book obsession because you have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I would say you have a four-year-old and a two-year-old because you have a children's book obsession. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I had a book obsession prior to their birth, and this just opened up a whole new segment of books that I could acquire. So uh, Lillian Hoban is the illustrator of this pair. I'm guessing their husband and wife. I've never looked into it, but... Lillian Hoban does the pictures and occasionally she gets the author credit and Russell Hoban usually gets the author credit. And the ones that get the most play at our house is this Francis series, which is around this, I guess, anthropomorphized. Man, I don't even know what kind of animals they are. They're not too far off from otters, but they're uh, muskratty type creatures. Uh, I don't know, but it's like, Stories about this little girl animal who's like a person living in an anthropomorphized animal society, kind of like this one. But uh, the Jug Band Christmas one has a little bit more text to it than the other ones that I've read by this pair. And the pictures are more colorful. Like I typically think of Lillian Hoban's pictures of being more black and white pencil sketch style. And the, they definitely pulled the character designs and even the, some of the setting designs straight from the book. The plot is pretty closely matches it. There's very minor tweaks. And the thing that really blew me away is the song name. So it talks about the character singing and I'm pretty sure they just made up song names for this book. And about half of the songs they mentioned ended up being songs in this actual special. So, uh, and I'm going to send you some screenshots of this, Brian, cause I also got it. On, I got it on Kindle. And so I can show you, I can take screenshots and send it to you, but they're they're pretty pictures, and and uh, I can see why someone would read this and be ins inspired to make a children's adaptation out of it. That's really cool. I didn't know a lot about this until I watched the featurette this time around about the making of. They had about like an hour long documentary, which the special is less than an hour, so really comprehensive. But I learned a lot, and it did talk about the character styles. Uh, and how they're designed being taken from the illustrations. And the result is that they look a little different from what you might typically expect from the Muppets. Like, they don't have the big ping-pong ball eyes, for instance. They have a more naturalistic appearance. They really do look like animals wearing, like, little tweed jackets. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. In general, ranging from the character design to the script, there's very little cartoonishness and silliness and manic energy to this. It's much more grounded than most Muppets adjacent projects that I've 
encountered myself. The documentary also mentioned what you said about the song titles already existing in the book and then Paul Williams essentially being handed that slate of titles. Okay, write songs for these, which is a cool challenge. Yeah, I would say he did an excellent job of it, too. Not to spoil talking points to come. Oh, definitely. I don't know if this makes more sense at the beginning or the end, but I also wanted to just shout out a couple other Henson Christmas projects, because obviously this is the one that's been part of my life since time immemorial. But I know as a Muppet fan, a middling to committed Muppet fan, but not a not a hundred percent ravenous, comprehensive Muppet connoisseur, that there are a handful of other specials out there. Christmas specials made by the Muppets and uh, the then later the Jim Henson Company. And I wanted to kind of take in a sampling of these to better understand how objectively good Emmett Otter is compared to the others. So I still have others to watch. I'm just going to kind of spitball, spitfire off a couple titles. One I haven't checked out yet that you might like is The Great Santa Claus Switch from 1970. That's a pretty early one. Uh, one that came shortly after Emmett Otter is John Denver and the Muppets A Christmas Together, which was from 1979 and is mostly known because it spawned a soundtrack album. Now, Dan, have you heard this album? I didn't know it was a special, but yeah, I've heard the album. I've been hearing it my whole life. It was one of those Christmas albums my dad played for us for as long as I can remember. Uh, I really like it. It's got what is, in my mind, the definitive version of the 12 Days of Christmas with all the Muppets, each one singing a different one of the 12 days. And you got Beaker going, me, 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 and, and all sorts of good. And Miss Piggy singing, Five gold rings, ba 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 ba. So, yeah, I've always loved that album. Yeah, a lot of great tracks on here. You've got the one that they sing in a round where they say, Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat. Here's to put a penny in the old man's hat. That's a great one. Yeah. And some good original ones, too. Like, I don't know if John Denver wrote them or the Muppets team wrote them, but a few that are classics to me. And this album is usually the first one to come out of the box each Christmas. So mm. definitely a favorite. I mentioned it here. We'll, we'll get into it in a second, but it does feature also a reprise of an Emmett Otter song. I saw that when I was reading about the special this week, but I knew I had heard that tune before and it made me wonder if it was a cover, but now I realize it was, it was opposite. The place that I knew it from was pulling it from this special. Right. Uh, one, I had seen the VHS for, I mean, like I had held the tape in my hand. I hadn't watched it, but this is The Christmas Toy from 1986. So still while Henson was alive, but towards the end of his life. I watched this one earlier today. And as I was watching it, I was like live tweeting to Dan. You got to check this thing out. So Dan is always a sport and game for me to pile things on when I definitely don't return that energy. Like, if it's not the assignment, I would feel comfortable just saying no, but usually Dan will uh, indulge me. And uh, so you watch this one too, right? Yeah, I found this one on Vimeo. So I caught up with this one this afternoon while I was finishing my work for the week. 
the reason it's notable, <laughs> the reason I steered Dan to it, is because we're both enormous Toy Story fans. This came out nine years before Toy Story, but the story in many ways is identical. Kind of mind-blowingly so. There are differences, but it's, I mean, it is striking, repeatedly striking how similar the plot points are. I completely agree. I mean, it's not nowhere near as good as Toy Story, but it's like Toy Story. It spends, so it's 50 minutes long and it spends the first five minutes basically explaining its premise. Toys come to life when people aren't there. Got to be careful the people don't catch you. Uh, we have this toy society that operates on rules, etc. Oh, you might get replaced at some point. That's the looming conflict. The difference is that this is all puppets and live action. The people walk in and they they look like toys on the ground and then the people walk out and all of a sudden the stuffed animal tiger is physically hopping up and moving around and talking to people. It was pretty wild. It never occurred to me that you, this is something you could do in live action. I thought that was pretty nifty. Yeah, the puppets are well done. Not a huge fan of the music in this one. This uh, had songs by the Sesame Street songwriter who has done good work, but none of these melodies really stuck out to me. I thought they were super generic. But the Toy Story parallels are just very apparent. So the protagonist is a favorite toy who is received as a Christmas gift. Now he is going to have to accept the loss of his status when a new favorite toy is received. And they like go down to the Christmas tree and open up what's in the box to see who's going to be the new Christmas toy. And it's a space-themed action figure who has the delusion that it's the character that they represent, and in fact, not a toy. It's a Meteora the Asteroid Queen. Yeah, one distinction here is She's like a tertiary character. She she only gets a couple minutes of play in this one. Whereas obviously that entire dynamic is the whole premise of Toy Story 1 in 1995. But you're exactly right. I, I don't know. I, I mean, they make a big deal about how, oh, can you believe that Disney stole Simba from this Japanese animation about a lion named Kimba? And that's one where the more that you read about it, the more skeptical you become that it was a straight-up theft. This is a straight-up theft. I mean, are you kidding me? Toys come into life, and the space character thinks that it's actually a space person and is going to replace the new favorite toy. I mean, that that's just too much for me. There's even some lines that are, like, the same. Like, the space toy comes out of the box and is looking around, walks up to a toy and says, What's your fuel source? I'm pretty sure Buzz says exactly that. It's like, do you, what does he say? Do you still use fossil fuels or have you discovered crystallic fusion? And then the toy says, oh, we, we use double A's. And then another exchange was the main character who's a tiger says something like, but you're not really an outer space queen. You're a toy. And she says, are you calling me a liar? And the tiger says, I'm calling you a toy. You are a toy. Yeah, interesting. An interesting discovery today. Do you want to share the macabre twist of this one? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> the main thing that's in this one, 1986 is the Christmas toy that is not 
preserved in Toy Story from 1995. If a toy is caught moving around by a human, they die. They're just dead. That's not a, that toy's soul does not exist anymore. They cannot move around with the other toys again, even in the absence of humans. And the toys just have the dead ones lying in a pile in the corner of the room. <laughs> <laughs> they just kind of unceremoniously toss them on the body heap. It was like vibes of the bring out your dead scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Exactly. The plague wagon. Except it's toys and, and they're like, oh, got got caught moving around. Throw them on, on the trash heap over here. And at the very end of the story, they find some way to resurrect them by like singing a song. I don't know if it has to be that specific song. I was wondering that. Or if it's the, like, expression of love. Like, if you express love for them, they come back. I wasn't sure. It makes you wonder, were they just not expressing love for the people who had previously passed? It's like, oh, I guess Jimmy's dead now. Oh, well, toss him on the heap. <laughs> yeah, very bleak. I can see why they didn't steal this element for Toy Story. Would you be comfortable throwing a rating on the Christmas toy real quick? Hmm. Just for the sake of discussion, is that something you prepped or no? Nah? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I wasn't sure, but since we did both watch it, uh, this is a little uh, rudimentary. I'll, I'll give it a four. Technically impressive. And this is uh, for any new listeners on an eight point scale. Yeah, we, we have our eight point goodness scale, which we usually do at the end of the episode here. I didn't love the music, but for originating, perhaps, so many potential Toy Story <laughs> points, I, got, I feel like I gotta give it some credit for that. Yeah, I'm right at the line of a four and a three. Um, I'll, I'll go with the four as well. I'll call it the good-ish, because it's really cool seeing the toys come to life, and that's liter that's the entire draw for me. There's literally nothing else I care about in this, which actually makes me think that maybe this should be a three. But okay, sure, I'm going with the three. This is a... Not not good Christmas special, but very hard to watch and process in the context of, hey, like the most influential animated series of the 21st century basically took the entire premise of this story wholesale and made it into a computer animated feature. Two other things I want to name drop real quick, and then I promise we'll get back to Emmett. So these are, it must be said, post-Henson projects, but produced by the Henson Company or the Muppets. So one is Mr. Willoughby's Christmas Tree from 1995. I haven't watched this one yet beyond the opening scene, which is the star, Mr. Willoughby, played by Robert Downey Jr., singing about how he's going to find the perfect Christmas tree. And he's got, you know, the Scrooge pajamas on with the wee willy winky cap and the bathrobe. And he's twirling around this big mansion singing about the perfect tree, the perfect tree. Oh, wherever can it be? And it just has such a weird energy. To me, I can really see that this comes on the eve of Robert Downey Jr.'s drug arrests starting in 1996. I don't know. He just has these manic eyes. <laughs> He's got the cocaine energy. And uh, I haven't watched it beyond that, so I can't really comment. But check out this scene. I either saw that one as a kid or I saw the trailer for it because that one definitely rings a bell for me. And then one that was a potential goods pick early on 
And I, I think Dan watched this one recently too, so maybe we could just uh, hit our most basic talking points now. But this is Elmo Saves Christmas from 1996. I probably, I may have even mentioned it here on the pod previously. Uh, this is one I watched the debut of, a Sesame Street special where Elmo rescues Santa after he's trapped in the chimney. And as a reward, Santa grants Elmo's wishes which is not typically a Santa power. But uh, here he has that ability. And Elmo wishes for it to be Christmas every day. And as a result, society collapses. <laughs> so what, one point of contention between me and... I don't know if point of contention is right. A little bit of contention. One point of difference between me and Brian is that I, just by the nature of the way that I have to watch things... I often watch things in segments. So a 90-minute movie I'll watch in one or two quote-unquote sittings, although I'm often not sitting watching them. Same thing with kids' movies. Sometimes I'll watch part of one and I'll have to wait a week to finish the second half of it or a couple days or something. So I actually watched half of this. It's a Christmas for a year, I think. Well, I don't know if it's for a year. I'm assuming it's for a year, but... It cuts in like one day each season or something along those lines. And I watched up through spring, which is, I think, the first one after like the day after Christmas when he gets his witch and things are still going good. Things haven't turned sour. Society has not yet collapsed, although there are rumblings of it there. I feel like if this would be an interesting pick, maybe we can do this in a future year because I think we have a lot to unpack here. Oh, yeah. If you haven't seen the whole thing yet, maybe we save this for next year. But it is kind of structured almost like a Christmas Carol where there's these different acts. You know, Christmas Carol has past, present and future. This has spring, summer and then the following winter. Uh, there are some Christmas everyday themed stories where it's like a time loop and characters are repeating the same Christmas day over and over. But I like the angle here where it just so happens that like the news media announces, well, we're going to do Christmas again on December 26th, guys. You just have to do it <laughs> because it's Christmas again. And then that continues on throughout the next calendar year. Christmas on Easter, Christmas on the 4th of July. I wish it were just like 10 minutes longer and we got a Christmas on Halloween chapter. Oh, man. That's my biggest... Missed opportunity of this presentation, but uh, I'm a fan. And yeah, maybe we will revisit this one. Maybe Jack Skellington swings by. Right. I excluded it from consideration this time around because I, I really thought we did need something that had Jim Henson's direct involvement. Yeah, his fingerprints through and through. Yeah, to compare with Turkey Hollow. And so with that, what do you say we take a look at what's actually in our bill of fare. Sounds good. I'm ready. All right. So Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, the 1977 special, kicks off with a narrator. It's not ludicrous this time. <laughs> you telling me there's other narrators in this world? Hard to believe, but it, here it's Kermit the Frog. This is where I'll say that depending on where you track this down, you might have a different viewing experience. Because there are multiple different cuts of Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas. One reason is that the Muppets, like things directly called the Muppets, were sold to Disney. 
while the Jim Henson Company retained pretty much anything else that wasn't specifically Muppets. Now, Kermit, he's a Muppet character. He's the he's the Muppet star. So some releases of this cut out the bookends of him narrating, and it was just released with the, the middle part, which is most of it anyway. Uh, but for the more recent DVD releases, it's restored. So on my old VHS, it's got Kermit. On my 2017 40th anniversary release, it's got Kermit. But I am told that like the 2005 DVD, no Kermit. Interesting. But it goes beyond that. There are like minute differences that it's harder to tell why they're there. I definitely noticed on this DVD that I was watching that there were like little extra pieces that weren't on the VHS tape. These are things you probably wouldn't notice if you hadn't watched the VHS every year for 30 years, you know? But it's it was even like sometimes there would be alternate camera angles. Like there would be a wide shot where there had previously been a close-up. And I, it made me want to like go full Howard Hughes and just analyze it like frame by frame. What's different here? Because it was noticeable. There were also some lines that were in. There were like extra lines to the songs. Mm. Like uh, the, in the opening song where they're singing about Grandma Otter's bathing suit, there's like additional whole verses. When the River Meets the Sea had a whole reprise at the end of this version I was watching that's not on the VHS. That's not at the end of the VHS? No, it just cuts. Well, we'll, we'll talk about how, how it ends when we, we get to where it ends, but it was a different, different way. So one thing I want to just quickly toss out there when we're talking about the alternate cuts, the version I found, and it might just be straight from the DVD, but it had the full cut, which was 49 minutes and eight seconds. And then it had a seven minute and 50 second alternate scenes cut. So it seems like someone has done the Howard Hughes work for you. You could like do a compare and contrast of the, the different things, but it, it does seem like there are different versions out there for sure. Well, that's good to know. One other noticeable moment. There's an exchange that they have with one of their customers because Emmett Otter's mom does laundry for people. And there's like a rich lady who gives her a hard time about not doing a good enough job cleaning the clothes. And she's like, not going to pay her on time. And there's a line where the, the mean Fox lady is walking away and Ma Otter says, well, I'd really appreciate it if you'd. And in the VHS version, she just trails off. But in the DVD version that I was watching, she says, I'd really appreciate it if you fall off the dock. That's the version I saw too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was almost like they uh, trimmed out the any any hint of edginess. So it's like scale back the bathing suit song, scale back any snark, and I I wonder if that was a deciding factor. Maybe yeah. Keep it as gentle and low key as you can. can I want to talk briefly about that that bathing suit song, by the way. So this is one of the songs where the title was pulled from the book. Why did it open with a song about how grandma's really fat and has a big bathing suit? What was the creative choice that led them down that path? <laughs> Known for her generous silhouette and yet 
known even more for the bathing suit she wore. And they're talking about how it could be a circus tent or the sail on a pirate ship. And that after she died, they cut it up and they were able to make clothes for like dozens of people. <laughs> I just don't get why that was like, hey, we need a way to introduce this world and these characters to our viewers. Grandma's really fat. Let's sing about that. That's the thing that we're going to choose. Katie and I, <laughs> my wife and I, we watched this with our two kids and like every other line, she and I like did a side eye at each other. They're really singing about this right now, the, the opening song, but it's not a bad song. <laughs> Maybe another reason that they scaled it back on the VHS cut. <laughs> it's like about half as long. Uh, but this, in fact, is our introduction to our main characters, Emmett Otter and his mother, Ma Otter. And they live in the village of Frogtown Hollow. So... Maybe a hint that uh, Turkey Hollow is an authentic uh, Jim Henson endeavor. Oh, man. Likes little towns with hollow in the name. I didn't even think about that. And the otters are on the lower class end of the spectrum. They get by doing odd jobs. Ma, as I said, cleans people's clothes. And Emmett gets gigs as a handyman. He goes around and helps people mend fences and things like that. Fixes porches, fixes steps, and he's got a toolbox that he uses. Right. One is an important setup here that the important thing that the boy needs is the toolkit, the tool set to do his odd jobs. And the mom does the laundry, so she needs her wash tub. And the wash tub is so important. They sing a song about that, too. Right. It's like we may not have much, but we can be optimistic because there's no hole in the washtub. Essentially, we have a way to make a living and, and get by and we have each other. I did a, a ranking of the songs. Oh, we'll definitely have to talk about that. I, I had bathing suit Grandma Otter wore at the bottom of the, the ranking. It's not a bad song, which I think speaks to the rest of the, the songs that we're about to hear, but... And I had hole the hole in the wash tub near the bottom too, but that one is also pretty catchy. I actually like almost all the songs we encounter here. Same. There's a lot that are, are pretty upbeat and catchy, and the lyrics are clever. Conversations between Ma and Emmett clue us in that Pa Otter is not in the picture. He died at some point prior to the events of the special. I don't know if they exactly say how long ago it was. But that's part of the reason that they're in the financial straits that they are. But Pa taught them to be optimistic. He was a snake oil salesman, they say. And I typically picture a snake oil salesman being like a shifty character. Somebody who's like twirling a mustache on the medicine wagon and trying to kidnap Pete's dragon. And, you know, leading wacky racers into pit traps. I'm glad you brought this up because I had the exact same reaction. They spend a lot of this movie talking about how, wow, Pa, he was so brave. He put it all on the line to sell snake oil. I was like, snake oil? Isn't that our common English metaphor for things that are really fake and meant to deceive people? I Googled it a little bit. That is indeed the etymology for that. It was like apparently a fad in the 19th century is... People would sell all sorts of liquids and call them snake oil liniment. 
mainly mineral water, but all, all sorts of things. Yeah, it was prior to the FDA cracking down, or in some cases before it even existed at all. And and now that that just there's no other usage of that except as someone who is selling fake deceptive stuff. So I'm not, and this is another thing that's in the book. So I'm not sure if Lillian and Russell Hoban were what they were trying to do. They were trying to tell us that Pa was actually kind of a skis ball, or if they were just being kind of clever and making in this world snake oil is a real thing that someone might sell. So I don't know. Maybe worth noting that some subset of the population is anthropomorphic snakes. Hmm. So maybe it has a use. <laughs> Perhaps. Maybe it's even more frightening and vile a thing that one might sell. <laughs> we take our members of society, we extract from them the fluids that we then sell to unsuspecting recipients, or perhaps recipients who are there exactly for that reason. Oh yeah, who can say? But something that has interested me recently is when you have a story about anthropomorphic animals, what species are included and which aren't? Like in Disney's Zootopia, for some reason they're all mammals. And I, I guess among furries or, or whoever, mammals are pretty a common choice. But it's like, do we have a bigger tent than that? What other species, what other clades are included? And here in Emmett Otter, it's pretty inclusive. We do have reptiles too, fish. Uh, do we see any bird people? Not that I can recall, but I'd believe it. Okay, no bird people. I call this the goofy Pluto paradox. It's like, what's the fine line between an animal in this world that otherwise represents our world and an anthropomorphized version of that? And sometimes it's a fine line. Right. But it's around Christmas time in Frogtown Hollow. And the otters are talking about the big day coming up and mulling over the fact that it's going to be hard to get each other Christmas presents with the money that they've got. I want to set the stage a little bit for what we're seeing as the special starts and as it goes along. The set is pretty interesting here. It's like a big, like think about like a shoebox diorama or really what it reminds me of is like a model train landscape, kind of writ large. And, and different scenes and different shots rely on sets of different scales but a lot of it they made this big river set and the otters get around in a rowboat on this river going to these different little animal communities there's frogtown hollow there's waterville there's river bottom that we never see but is supposedly the the shady like the wrong side of the tracks but what what struck you about this set then I really loved it. I think of Muppets, and Muppets are kind of small compared to humans. And so they're not as small as, I'm, I guess I'm thinking of Kermit, as like the actual animals they represent. But they're typically like about, I don't know, a third of the height of a human or something. But they live in our main world. And so that's kind of my comparison point. They live in the world that I know. Things are the size that I know. But in this, they are puppets like Muppets. But they live in a world where everything is the size as if they were the humans. And I really like your 
model train set comp. That's a good comparison point of just thinking about what this all looks like. It's really charming, really rustic, just this fully realized setting. That's like a tiny little small town where these characters live. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was really charming and and just engaging. I felt like I was there. So I liked it. Yeah, this time around, I really found myself wondering what was the scale of different things. Like if a person walked up beside this, how big would they be? And it made me really grateful that this very detailed featurette is on the disc. And sure enough, there was footage of people walking around and operating uh, in amidst the sets. And any time that a person would like step in, it was really striking. It's like, ah, a giant. <laughs> but something that this special makes a lot of use of that was new at the time is radio control puppetry. And I guess this was developed by Foz Fazakis. Great Muppeteer name. And people have said maybe the namesake of Fozzie Bear. Hmm. Sounds like a cheese to me. I've heard other places dispute that Foz Fazakis was the inspiration for Fozzie's name. But I think when you have another Muppeteer named Kermit Love and you got Foz Fazakis, I think you got to speculate. So this radio control system allows the puppets to be operated with the humans completely at a distance. So we see a lot of shots of Emmett and Ma rowing in a boat in a river. And you might be wondering, oh, where are the puppeteers in there? Are they like inside the puppets with enough air that they can be breathing from underneath? Or how is it working? Well, they can actually steer these things around and even make the puppets operate the oars using remote controls. We also get some shots where they're like driving cars and snowmobiles. There's this biker gang that keeps popping up. They tend to be going around in some kind of vehicle, and that'll usually be like a medium long shot with the the vehicle driving around by remote control. I really like this car with the river bottom gang. Yeah. Uh, another technique that they use that doesn't look as good is like it'll cut during close-ups. We'll get usually the traditional Muppet style hand puppetry. And that's, you know, what you're used to seeing and it looks good. And then for like long shots where it's vehicles and stuff going around and the boat on the river, we've got this remote control setup, and that looks good. But then in between often we'll have full body shots of the Muppets where we see their legs. And these are marionette shots where it's the, the puppeteer is operating them with strings from above. The featurette showed that they are actually in cherry pickers up above the set, which is kind of cool. But these shots do not look good. Anytime you see a Muppet's legs, it's like a cursed image. <laughs> makes you yeah. very uncomfortable some of them i swear you can see the marionette strings too i was what i was clicking through it again and looking at some of those shots i think if you look closely you can see the strings yeah which is very jarring when what you've come to be used to is the standard muppet style where it would be blasphemy to see a string sometimes you know you see a hand rod like something that they use to move the hand around but mm. You don't see the strings. 
Emmett and Ma both have musical talent. And so as they're rowing along, we've kind of said they're singing these songs, some of them borrowed from the book. I mean, they both seem to be diegetically good at singing. Right. So like when they're talking about the departed father, they have a song that they sing called When the River Meets the Sea, which I think of as in the style of a funeral song. Like you could definitely hear this played on a organ. It sounds like a real folk song, like a Southern hymn type song. Really evocative. And the lyrics are definitely symbolizing death in some way. And so I think it represents the grief of their lost family member, the the father or the husband pretty well. And this one pops up a couple times throughout the special. Right. And it was the one that got reused. I think it's in the John Denver special. It's certainly on the John Denver album. And then Jerry Nelson, who plays Emmett here, went on to sing this song at Jim Henson's funeral in 1990. So it's clear that it was a resonant in-house favorite. But the gifts that catch Ma and Emmett's eye for Christmas are musical as well. Emmett is really interested in a guitar. He says it has mother-of-pearl inlays. Just a, a nice, stylish guitar in a store window. And Ma makes an offhand reference that it would be nice to have a piano again. I guess they had a piano once when times were better uh, that she then had to sell for some money. Yeah, note the mother of pearl inlays comes up once in the book, but I feel like they mention it four times or something in the special. That's what makes the guitar that's in the instrument shop special is it has mother of pearl inlays. Man, I want to read this book now. I'm definitely going to have to come and take a look. Definitely come by and... Sorry, you can do a reading to, to my two daughters, yeah. Awesome. They talk about this guitar costing $40, and it always makes me wonder, what time is this story taking place? It's got kind of like a Norman Rockwell, Ray Bradbury, timeless Americana setting. I think maybe it's the 1950s, because like prices are low... Technology-wise, what we see is cars and snowmobiles. Like, presumably, there's radio. And uh, then, at one point, we, we find out that rock and roll exists. Yeah, it's interesting. I thought that it seemed Depression-era, other than the rock and roll and a couple of the technology comparisons. I think it's kind of a blend of general mid-century stuff altogether maybe early to mid-century stuff yeah that's fair because like i said there's this gang of greasers driving around greasers or bikers they've got this jalopy that they drive around and they keep showing up around town and causing trouble they're more charismatic than everyone else too they're like a bunch of Different interesting puppets, and they all have really distinct personalities, just from like the first time you meet all of them. Yeah, so this is another crew of anthropomorphic animals, and what I like is that it's like all the same puppeteers who do the respectable animals, but cutting loose here. They're like the the Jekyll and Hyde halves. So like Emmett is played by Jerry Nelson, 
Jerry Nelson also plays the weasel in this gang. Who's going to get to sing later on? He's like, we don't want to stop at no music store. <laughs> that's yeah. That's about what it sounds like. And uh, uh, Frank Oz plays the gang leader who's Chuck the Bear. He basically has Cookie Monster's voice, but made as deep as possible. Because no, I'm not hungry. I'm hungry. He he's the tough hotshot. Where whenever he says something, it's immediately law. One thing I liked is there's a catfish. I think it's a catfish. It looks a little bit like some sort of sea creature, but I saw in the credits it was listed as a catfish. So that's what I'll take it as. And it's just always hanging around with them, but it's living in the water. They have like a fish tank in the back of their motorcycle. Yeah, so they have to bring water with them wherever he goes. He's like the firebenders in the uh, M. Night Shyamalan Avatar movie. He's got he's to bring it with him. I haven't seen the movie, so that's not a reference that I can follow there. Well, so... Uh, <laughs> complete deviation from the topic at hand but uh, m night Shyamalan thought that the firebenders were op by being able to summon it from the air like they do on the show because obviously waterbenders they got to have a body of water and earthbenders they use the the dirt around them so uh in the avatar movie that m night Shyamalan made they have to like carry around torches to use okay and and that's your comparison point here for the catfish is they got to bring around the yeah yeah I mean they got to carry them around in a bucket they got to have the like the little pool container in the back of their uh, jalopy because it would be op to just have a fish walking around they're still kind of op spoiler alert but <laughs> that's that's true that's at least an inhibitor for them yeah but Emmett and Ma you know they're they're thinking Turkey Hollow style we got to come up with some money fast. In Turkey Hollow, they had to come up with money by Thanksgiving to save the farm. Here, they got to have some money to be able to get each other Christmas presents before Christmas, which is a couple days away. Separately, Emmett and Ma learn from one of their friends that there's a talent show contest coming up in the nearby town of Waterville, where the prize is going to be $50 if they win. And we know that guitar costs $40. And we don't know how much the piano costs, but Emmett is confident that uh, if he gets some money, he'll be able to put a down payment on a used one, which I guess is something you could do. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too interested in parsing into all the specific details here. That seems like a bad choice, though. Pianos aren't cheap. They're expensive. And they're hard to maintain. And... I'm not sure you should be putting a major down payment on something like that. Although they make a point that it was like a big part of their life prior to the events of this story, prior to when their father and husband died. If I were a financial planner, I would be saying, piano, that's not the, you're not going to get a good ROI on that. You're going to be paying that one off for a bit. It's like, I don't know if the guitar is $40, how much do you think the piano is overall? Probably more than that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of broad variation in, like, qualities and costs of pianos. That's true. I mean, like, if you keep your ear to the ground in, like, buy-nothing groups, people are giving away free pianos all the time, but you know that you get what you pay for. 
Right. So they're going to be janky. On the other end, you know, people like my friend Ben has a grand piano in his house, like a concert orchestral grand piano. And that thing was expensive and it's really big. Right. So, you know, lots of variation. But that's what they're interested in. Both musical instruments and and they want to try to make those dreams a reality for each other. So they're going to enter this talent contest using their musical abilities. Ma decides she wants to sing and Emmett's friends convince him that they should form a jug band. Now, this is the only place I've heard of a jug band being called a jug band, but this is like Appalachian style music. Yeah, it's kind of bluegrassy, but I think of bluegrass, I think of the Dillards. You want to talk about a deep cut here? I don't know how many people have heard of the Dillards, but to me, they're the quintessential bluegrass band. Their instrumentation doesn't quite match what we see here, but their compositional style does. It's like harmonizing ditties, polyphonous music. That is to say, each instrument is kind of doing a tune that could be on its own, the melody. But when they all kind of flow together, it still makes a beautiful stew of sound. And the, when I think of bluegrass, I think of mandolins and banjos and stuff. Yeah, so we've got Wendell the Porcupine on the jug, Harvey the Beaver on washboard, Charlie the Muskrat on the cigar box banjo. And then what do they tell Emmett he's got to play? Yeah, he's got to do a wash tub bass. Is that what it's called? Yeah, wash tub bass, which actually does have its own Wikipedia article. So this is a real thing. It's like you stick a broom handle through the bottom of a wash tub and attach a string to it. And then you can play string bass on the, the taut cord off of the, the handle. So very homebrew. I like how we heard about we don't have a hole in our wash tub. That was like a, a plot thread set up early on and it felt like a throwaway, but it was just setting up that we were, oh, what if there was a hole? Wouldn't that be pretty devastating? Yeah, because to make a wash tub base, you have to put a hole in the wash tub. So now let's talk about the gift of the Magi, Dan, <laughs> because the gift of the Magi, as listeners are likely aware, is a 1905 short story by American author O. Henry. And the premise is there's a poor couple. It's coming up on Christmas time and they're scrounging to get gifts for each other. And the idea they hit on is that they are going to sacrifice something that's important to them to be able to get some money to buy the gift. But then it turns out, ironically, that the recipient ultimately can't use the gift because of what they gave up. In that story, it's like the wife donates her hair to a wig maker or something. I don't know who's buying hair in 1905, but somebody. And the husband pawns his watch to get money. And what they buy for each other is the, the husband gets combs for the wife that she doesn't need now that she's bobbed her hair. And the wife gets a, a watch chain for the husband who doesn't have his watch anymore. And it's, you know, supposed to be like heartwarming that they would sacrifice for each other. And ultimately, they're more in love than ever. But I was always kind of left feeling cheated. It's like, uh, well, this is still kind of coal on Christmas. It's like, 
They just got to kind of sit around and twiddle their thumbs now. Yeah, no. When you're poor, capitalism sucks. That's the takeaway. I actually have a note here. Kind of Gift of the Magi-esque. So I'm glad we're we're going here. But it's there are some differences, and I think you're about to hit on that. Yeah, it's way worse here because they're not giving up what's important to them. They are destroying the other person's important possession and not just like something that they have and they like but the source of their livelihood because ma otter says she needs a costume to sing her song in the talent show which like she doesn't really i mean she could sing a song without a costume (laughs) but to get the money for this she pawns off the tools which Emmett uses for his, you know, his construction work, his uh, contracting. And now Emmett's gone and made the wash tub unusable by making this musical instrument. So we're kind of underhanded to do these things. Yeah, one one thing that's explicitly laid out in the book, but is, I guess, pretty heavily implied here in the short, in, in the special is that their main source of income is from the laundry that Ma does. So messing up the wash tub, it's really messing with your way of life there. I mean, I guess the same is true of the odd jobs that happen. You know, it's not just like a thing that she does. It's like the thing that she does. She washes clothes. That's She's a, a launder. What do you call it? A laun- is there a noun for someone who does laundry? A laundress, or I guess a launderer. I was going to say launderer, but that makes me think of criminal acts. But I don't know. Anyways, yeah. Well, you clean the clothes, you clean the money, so. (laughs) Same etymology. Yeah, a big gamble. Putting a lot on the line for this contest. And of course, we know that only one of them potentially can win, so. And, And they might not win, so. Yeah, or if neither of them win... Guess I'll die. I mean, like, what are your options there? (laughs) Exactly. Got to find a new line of work. We do get some nice scenes of practicing, though. I I really like seeing the jug band getting ready. One one of my favorite scenes in this special is them practicing their song, which is called Barbecue. Yeah, this one showed up pretty high in my ranking of the songs. I I like this one, Uh, particularly their first version of it when they're all in a little barn or something playing it out yeah it's like a it's like a tree house and this is the promise of the premise moment you know it's got a jug band in the title and you might be wondering well, what is a jug band and here it is in action playing this song about barbecue and i really love barbecue i think that plays into it too like that might be my favorite food category you'll eat the savored sweetened meats and you'll you'll listen to people sing about them too Yes. The other notable barbecue song that I'm aware of is Rhett and Link. This is something you posted about like five years ago on our old blog, earnthis.net. They have a song about barbecue. Yeah, a really good song. So I like thinking about it. I like singing about it. I like eating it. So high on the list. And I do really like this musical presentation where they've got the, the washboard and the kazoo it just, it sounds really good to me. I, I, I crank this one. The the music in this special is like legitimate genre work. The bluegrass is bluegrass, I guess, jug band music. And it sounds 
like legitimate versions of that music. And then you have the folk songs and the country songs that get sung throughout. It's just really good songwriting. Like I was really enjoying it. It's very earnest and sincere. I was having a good time whenever music was coming on. And a lot of the runtime, it's, you know, 50 minutes and there's something like eight songs and they're not super short songs. So you're getting a lot of music as the special goes. And it's it's all pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Paul Williams knocked it out of the park. And you're right. It's it's really mostly a musical review. So the story is pretty simple. Doesn't take up a lot of the runtime. But the night of the big show rolls around and we get another centerpiece set, which is this like town hall auditorium. And it's cool just how many puppets are here because there's a whole big full audience of puppets watching the show. All kinds of different animals. They said in the featurette that they pretty much pulled out any puppet body that they had in the back. They could make look passively like an animal from a distance and shoved it into a seat and then just had like all the all the puppeteers kids and interns and just anybody who was around moving stuff around out in this audience and the mc of the talent show is the mayor of waterville this is harrison fox which is a name that i like and uh, this is director jim henson uh, doing a deep booming voice as the fox mayor and you got a panel of judges like American Idol or America's Got Talent. We get to see like little snippets of what the different acts are going into this show. And I really enjoy some of these just couple seconds that we get of the lesser talent show act. Like basically the basically the ones that don't pose a threat to Ma and Emmett yet. It's like dancing ballet bunnies, but they're not very good. And there's something where some people dressed up as a horse. It's like a brother and a sister dressed up as a horse. But because the dressing rooms are opposite gender and the dressing rooms lead straight out onto the stage, they're like not actually prepared to be the horse out on stage and gets a bundle of laughs. Yeah, they just fall over. (laughs) Yeah, they kind of got screwed over last minute. Maybe that act would have been amazing. Who knows? And there's like squirrels who flip through the air doing some acrobat act. While this is going on, Emmett and his band and Ma are waiting in the wings. And this is when they kind of run into each other and realize what's been going on. Things take a turn for the worse when another performer goes out there and it turns out he's also playing Barbecue, the song that the jug band wants to do. And he's, like, worse than them, but he beat them to the song. You don't want to be the second person to perform barbecue, even if you do it better. It's like when you split Academy votes. It's the Amadeus problem. If you have two good actors, you have two two things from the same song, the same style, they're going to split the votes. You don't want to split the votes. So you got to do something different. Just like in Amadeus, you had the two notable actors. I think one of them ended up winning. So maybe this isn't a good comparison point, but you don't want to split your votes. That's the challenge. Yeah, that time around, Salieri got to win. So gotcha. Props to F. Murray Abraham. We got to talk Amadeus someday. Yeah, that'd be fun. So I was big into talent shows at TJ. I I love talent shows. TJ being our high school, yeah. Yeah, and uh, 
So I definitely vibe with this uh, spirit of hanging out backstage and watching what's going on and just it being a community building experience. One year, though, there were two groups that did the same song. I remember Too Late to Apologize. I think it was my senior year, like spring 2008, and two different groups did the same song and they let it happen and, and the world didn't end. Huh. Did either of them win? Uh, I guess there was no there was no grand prize. Uh, there was a winner, though, and it was neither of them. So I guess maybe there's something to it. I have an even worse anecdote than that. So I went to UVA and I was in the UVA marching band for two years and they did a talent show. So each section of the marching band, each instrument of the marching band put on a act on the talent show. And one year... Two sections simultaneously decided their acts were going to be, we're going to choose one of the guys from our section and have them go sing Part of Your World from The Little Mermaid up on stage. And wouldn't it be hilarious to have a guy singing this classic song from our youth about girl, a young woman, discovering her place in the world? Well... When the second person came up and like, I, I feel bad for him. What was he going to do? Like, this is the thing that I'm going to do. I'm going to do the thing that the guy did 12 minutes ago. I'm going to sing this song. I don't know if they simultaneously came up with that idea on their own or if there was some sort of like brainstorming and they both thought the other wouldn't do it or whatever. But to me, having two acts where the main thrust is the irony of having a dude singing a somewhat feminine song was pretty awkward <laughs> but the memories live on yeah i guess so they will last through the ages but the jug band is able to put something together last minute and both groups ma and emmett put on a pretty respectable showing the jug band comes out with a song called brothers and ma otter performs a song called our world or welcome to our world and they both get pretty favorable audience responses. I will say Brothers, not quite up there with barbecue, but still solid. By the way, the real winner of the talent show is this piano player. He's accompanying every single act. Oh, and that was true to form. I don't know if you remember um, Jesse Wong from TJ, but he would fill that role. Oh, wow. Being everybody's piano player. I didn't know that, but yeah, that's cool. But we haven't seen the biker gang in a while. And in a surprise last-minute twist, they're the entry that's been allowed because they've come from so far away. You know, we couldn't turn them away at the door. And so here are the Riverbottom Boys as the Nightmare. They have put together a rock band, which ends the talent show with a powerhouse rock band performance of the song Riverbottom Nightmare Band. What did you think of this scene, Dan? This is the song at the top of my ranking for the songs from this special. I love this song. It, it's an amazing hard rock number. There's like rocking out organ and this like sludgy electric guitar going on. It's like kind of the Doors-esque. The fish is splashing around in a tank. And it's a plausible rock number. And I mean... It was good. I really like it. They got like cool stuff going on with the lighting. They 
in the book, it explicitly says they have someone doing the colorful lights, flashing different lights on them. The book plays up the kind of modernist versus classical rustic element where, oh, it's those city folk doing their city folk thing, which here they're not really city folk. They're bullies more so doing like weird heavy rock stuff. It's awesome, though. I love it. And the puppets are cool, like a snake slithering up and down an electric guitar. It's like freaking awesome. I want to go see the River Bottom Nightmare Band in real life. Yeah, this is the best part. <laughs> the production values kick up to 11 on everything. Like none of the other acts had these lighting setups, but they've got a whole rig and the camera angles get interesting there's like rack focus going on to really highlight these lights shining down from above. Like, I think they knew what they had here. This is really everybody cutting loose as like the, the front man, the, the singer uh, is Jerry Nelson again, the same guy playing Emmett, but here he is as this slimy weasel. And he gets these great lines about just how nasty the, the I want to say the Rock of Fire, that's not the Riverbottom Nightmare guys, uh, just, you know, how nasty they are. And then it'll always be uh, the bear coming in. And so we get lines like, the grass does not grow on the places where we stop and stand. Riverbottom Nightmare Band. It's it's amazing. <laughs> we don't wish to learn, but we hate what we don't understand. River Bottom Nightmare Band. Very iconic. Yeah. I want to hear your one-man band version of this, Brian. Man. Uh, yeah. We got to practice this one and, and bring it to you in fall. But maybe you'd get a better experience if you just watch the scene. And so, wouldn't you know it, the Nightmare wins the talent show. They showed up last minute, they did the best job, and they rightfully received the prize. Uh, they may not be the most morally upstanding, but they put on the best show. I got a hypothetical for you, actually. Do you think that Emmett Otter should have thrown the talent show once he saw his mom perform? So he's in a group of four people in a band, and if they win, they're splitting it four ways. $12.50 a person. But if the mom wins, she gets $50. She gets the, the full pot herself. And if they think they're the two main competitors, if you're Emmett Otter, don't you go out there and, oh, oops, my my bass string broke. Guess I'll sabotage the whole act now. I mean, that seems like kind of a dick move. Do you like do you tell your bandmates or do you just go and you do that? It, it sounds like $50 is a significant amount of money. He was repairing a fence for 50 cents. That's like half a day's worth of work for 50 cents. $50 is a hundred times that. Like my friends will forgive me eventually, but if my mom gets $50, I'm getting a kick-ass guitar. And I mean, I guess I don't know that at the moment, but yeah, I mean, you're right. It would be kind of a dick move, but I'm just thinking here at game theory, like if I'm Emmett Otter, <laughs> yeah prisoners prisoners dilemma it serves you well to sell everybody else out let the mom win the, the contest here 
No, that is interesting to think about. I, I always like being able to return to these things and see them from a new angle and just think about what if. But yeah, they didn't win. So they didn't get the money. Now they have no way of making their accustomed living. And everybody's walking home along the riverbank talking about, oh, well, what are we going to do now? But they kind of all come to the conclusion that they're happy that they did a good job. You know, they, they did put together acts and they, they went out there and risked it all at one pitch and toss, as Rudyard Kipling says. And they start singing again, because that's what they do. They raft or boat or walk down the river and they sing. And they find out that the two songs that they performed in the talent show go together. Almost like... They were written that way, because, spoilers, they were written that way. <laughs> yeah. But it becomes like a Megazord or something, like a music Voltron. Yeah, it sounds good, though. And townsfolk are starting to gather, listening to them, including one of the judges from the talent show, who was a guy named Doc Bullfrog. I like this character's design. He, he looks a little like Michigan J. Frog from Warner Brothers. Oh, yeah. Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Right. The guy who used to be the mascot back when uh, WB50 was a TV channel. I think it became the CW. I, th I think the WB channel became the CW. That could be just totally made up, but I, I think that's what happened. They should have kept him as the, the mascot when it's like Riverdale and stuff. Yeah. For all the edgy teen shows. Yeah. But uh, Doc Bullfrog is really into this music now. And I guess he runs a local restaurant, which is doing brisk business on Christmas Eve. I, I don't know how realistic that is. I mean, I'm sure there's like Chinese restaurants that get a lot of business on Christmas Eve. Yeah, I think of that as a home meal night. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, he says, hey, come and work performing at my restaurant and you'll get paid regular when you play regular. And that's a line from the book. Oh, awesome. I didn't know that. And in some cuts, Kermit's there in the restaurant audience, and he does, like, a sign-off. That, I don't remember if it was on the VHS. It was on the DVD I watched this time. And then we actually get a scene after the restaurant performance, which the VHS, they're, they're singing at the restaurant, and then it just cuts to the credits. That's, that's the end. Uh, but here on the one I was watching this time, they walk back out into the snow after the restaurant performance, and they sing a reprise of When the River Meets the Sea. I have a hard time imagining this without it, because it's like the synthesis of the themes of dealing with the grief, but also like looking forward and uniting together to build a better future. And it takes kind of the sad stuff, but it builds the upbeat stuff from the jug band on top of it. Uh, I really like this. This actually was second on my song ranking list behind the River Bottom Nightmare Band song, uh, especially the reprise. So did you consider the did you, you consider the reprise separate from the first performance? Oh, I just grouped them together and I put the better of the two as where the ranking went. OK, that's fair. I could have done them separate, I suppose. But yeah, I really like this reprise here because you get the same folk style song, but you got a cool jug band behind it. <laughs> and that's Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas from 1977. I wanted to just mention a couple other things that I learned from this detailed documentary that was on the DVD. So Frank Oz 
who's uh, one of the most iconic and well-known Muppeteers. He did Miss Piggy and Fozzie and Bert, and he's Grover and Cookie Monster, and he did Yoda in the Star Wars movies. Is the puppeteer here for Ma? Not her voice, though. Uh, an actress named Marilyn Sokol did the voice of Ma Otter, but apparently she was a bad puppeteer. She, like, couldn't make her hand move in sync with her mouth. Like, even her standing in front of the camera doing her interview, she's, like, demonstrating doing puppetry, and I could tell that she, like, couldn't sync her hand up with her mouth. And so they had uh, they had Frank Oz do the puppetry. Just one thing that was kind of interesting in this documentary is it showed clips from the original audio track of Frank Oz doing the voice too. And it was the right decision to have somebody else do the voice. <laughs> you you wouldn't want her sounding like Miss Piggy the whole time. Yeah, that could be off-putting. She's supposed to be like a legitimately winning and charming singer a maternal figure not a i don't know what you'd call miss piggy yeah like a diva or a kind of a, a silly diva and then the other thing that i thought was kind of funny is all the puppeteers talked about this scene early on in the film when the nightmare group the the gang from riverbottom they are ransacking a music store in town and a drum rolls out of the door of the music shop and crashes into the street in front of Emmett, who's standing out there. And, you know, it's like a, a five second shot tops. It's just like a little thing that happens. But apparently Jim Henson was hell bent that the drum had to roll perfectly out the door, hit the little light post in front of Emmett, and then tip over and like roll around on its edge like a coin, you know, and then it falls flat in front of him. And apparently the very first time they rehearsed this, it worked perfectly, but they weren't rolling the camera. And then it never happened again. <laughs> but they did like 200 takes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And just so there were clips in this documentary of the puppeteers like improving and making jokes about how this drum is never going to roll right. <laughs> and it was good to see this footage. I just imagine them getting more and more mad at each other. Yeah. <laughs> and... <laughs> Thinking of uh, Donna and Parks and Rec saying, what's so great about the shapes? And here it's like, what's so great about the drum rolling over? Like, why do, why do you care so much about it? Yeah, Jim, we, we gotta move on. <laughs> We're burning daylight. Oh, one other cool thing about this set. They can, like, change the time of day. There's this big, um, cyclorama, like, scrim. This big piece of fabric on an arch that is dropped down behind all the woodland set pieces. And they can light it different depending on the time of day. So anytime the sun sets, it looks really beautiful. That's really cool, yeah. It's it's really technically proficient, all the things that they put together. And it's like, it, it just kind of seamlessly fits together when you watch the special. Yeah, on that note, did you want to call out any, any other good things about this film that we haven't specifically uh, given lip service to yet? Here's just a couple of details. One is the 
the floating on the water. They're like doing stuff on the boat. I don't know. It's like they're completely detached from anything. Yeah, so a lot of that was the remote control. And then, like, if they need close-ups, they had a thing where it was, you know, like, more Sesame Street style, where it was, like, water in the background, and then the you just see the boat and the puppets sticking up out of the boat. And, and there it was hand puppetry. That's cool, yeah. And another thing I liked, that as soon as I looked closely at it, I imagined as being difficult to do well, but seem kind of effortless in the moment, is when you have several planes of puppetry so you have like the puppets in the front and then you have in the background other puppets moving there's like one early on where Emmett is hammering a fence and then the homeowner is in the background calling out to him and so you have these puppets in these different depths of field and it just looks kind of cool and as I was thinking about it I was like I bet they had to work hard to make that look just right this was something I really noticed this watch through yeah, just how they compose the different shots and have things going on at different depths. Like uh, at one point, they're walking on the ice and they're in the foreground. And then in the background, there's puppets skating around on the ice. And you can see them back there moving. And then at an another point, there's the focus is on like a crane or a heron. Uh, an actual animal bird. I mean, it's a puppet, but it's not a it's not a stork person. It's a it's a stork animal that's like uh, rearing up in the water in the foreground, and then in the background you see them in the boat going by. And yeah, very artful, very consciously designed. And broadly, again, I'll just say that I liked the songs quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. They are are on average pretty good. Definitely better than anything uh, served up in 1986 as a Christmas toy. <laughs> That's, yeah, agreed. I don't know if this came up earlier. We were talking about Paul Williams and his various contributions. He wrote all the songs in A Muppet Christmas Carol. That's right. He did the Muppet movie in 1979 and then came back for Muppet Christmas Carol in 1992. And, and I'm real high on the songs in Muppet Christmas Carol. So that was pretty cool to see the connection here because I think... Both specials do well by their music. Yeah, this is much more musical than the alternately titled Musical Monsters of Turkey Hollow. <laughs> That's very true. Anything else you wanted to call out? Maybe something that you didn't like as much? Yeah, before we swing to the negative, one additional positive thought that I kind of mentioned up front, I just want to reemphasize. This movie is really earnest. It's really thoughtful and it's like a depiction of the toll that poverty takes on you. It's not silly at all. And I was kind of moved by it. It's I mean, it's like, you know, puppets singing, and, but it does take seriously its world and the condition of its characters and everything they have to encounter. And I think honestly, that's one of my big takeaways from this is that. Like they were pretty serious about telling this story, and I admired it for that and really enjoyed it. I don't know. It just felt a little more meaningful than I was kind of expecting. So that that's a kind of a positive thought that I had watching this. Good call. Yeah, I really like a lot about how the, the world is physically constructed. I like that they're trying the new tech. 
I mean, a lot of this radio stuff would go on to get used other times that, you know, a, a person couldn't be there physically operating a puppet. So there's some of this stuff like in Labyrinth, which is definitely a movie I find very impressive. And uh, just a lot of creative people working on something that they're passionate about. Right. It definitely has a spark of passion, both towards storytelling and towards the craft of puppetry that... For example, Turkey Hollow does not have. <laughs> yeah, are we ready? Uh, I don't know if we talk Turkey Hollow comparisons before or after we put a rating on this thing, or or maybe during. But uh, what's what's going on in your mind? Re Turkey Hollow. Yeah. So Turkey Hollow didn't need to be a puppet associated thing. It certainly is not associated at all with the storytelling mode that. We're dealing with here with the Jim Henson had where every little thing felt like a little dollhouse scene crafted with passion to tell a very specific and meaningful story. Turkey Hollow, it had some charm to it. I liked it a little more than you did, but it's just a TV special that happens to have a couple puppets in it. It doesn't feel like of a creative, distinct voice the same way that this feels like. It has an actual voice behind it. I concur. Yeah. No, I, I you put it into words better than I'm ready to. So, yeah, you nailed it. It's just that one felt like they made it to have something fill an hour on Thanksgiving 2015. Whereas this stands up to the ravages of time a little bit better. Right. As far as things slightly negative... One is the story itself. It's just a little slight. I actually, I read the book after I watched the movie and it made me slightly more appreciative. I don't know why, but like seeing that it was adapted in a straightforward manner from a, a complete source text made it feel more complete to me. Maybe that's just a mental block I have, but it, as soon as I saw that it, it matched something, it it clicked a little bit more, but I don't know. It still feels like it's not a lot of story. It's just a lot of musical numbers. But I, I honestly feel like that's a pretty minor issue. Like it, it actually holds together really well. So that was just a thought I had. Is there's if you're looking at an hour long special, there are certainly sixty minute long stories that have a lot more actual story to them than this does. Yeah, the only thing I've got on my not so good list is. Muppet legs are creepy and bad. <laughs> you, you never want to see a Muppet's legs. And this is true even in like Muppet movie 1979. There's like a scene where it's Kermit and Fozzie dancing on the stage and there's like green screen behind them. So you can see them full body and it's it's creepy. I don't like it. Muppets are made to be seen from the torso and above. Maybe I'm just cynical or presumptuous. If you can figure out every goddamn else thing about how to make the puppets look amazing, make their knees bend and make them walk like they're not from that web game Quop. <laughs> it's like that you should be able to figure out how to make that work. It shouldn't be that complicated. No, you're right. And, you know, sometimes they're able to pull off something a little a little better in the leg front, like. Uh, I would point to this. Look at some of the stuff in like the storyteller, um, maybe Labyrinth or Dark Crystal, where they needed to 
be full body a little more. Mm-hmm. And there have been ways that they've approached it and it's been a little better. But yeah, definitely a moment where it's like the string show, sometimes literally. That's true. Yeah. My other negative thought on this film is it's more of a mixed tilting negative thought is the happy ending. It's like the gift of the Magi does not end happily. And I kind of felt like this movie was leaning towards a the poor get poorer. I mean, maybe I'm just a cynical 2021 leftist, but it's like this reality constructed does not seem to support poor otters. And the fact that they just get gifted out from almost literal heavens. It's like he's standing up on a balcony above them. He's like, come sing and you will get money and food. It's felt a bit fantastical to me. I do like the symbolism of it where instead of sacrificing even in the name of love things on their own, once they unite, they are actually able to achieve much more and much happier. It's like you got to work together. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward message, but working together, you do great things. And on your own, you can't get as far. And once they unite, it's better. I I like that. And I liked it symbolically, but from a plot perspective, it was like, oh, dang, we still lost. But what if you got a real job singing all the time up from the balcony above felt just a hair cheap to me. Yeah. Yeah. Deus ex frogina. (laughs) Something like that. Otherwise, I really like this, though. I thought it was really thoughtful and charming. And I want to go to a Riverbottom Nightmare Band concert. Give me the ticket. I'll wear my mask. I'll go. Oh, uh, speaking of, they did make in recent years, I think it said 2008, the Jim Henson Company has made a a live stage production version of this show. So it is possible to go and see uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas on stage. Oh, man. We might have to look into that, find out where it's touring. I'd do it. And so are you ready now to put a number value on your judgment, Dan? Sure, yeah. Can you? Can you tell me whether Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas is good? I would be happy to tell you that, Brian. And what I would tell you is that Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas is good. In fact, I would go one step farther. I would say Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas is very good. Uh, I'm at a high six. It's almost a seven. It's not quite a seven, but I'm at a very good. I really like this one. It's really charming. It's one I want to watch again what I want to share with my family. And I think it tells a meaningful story with really good music, really good puppetry, just a lot of soul, a lot of heart. I had a really good time. I I just really like the characters and how real in the world they felt. It didn't feel like a thing that was just there to tell the specific story. It felt like the lived in world and the characters felt like they had real reasons for doing the things they were going to do. And so it was just really effective for me. And I was won over. So I'm going to give it a high, very good, nearly exceptionally good. What about you, Brian? Nice. Well, for me, it does get to the seven. Exceptionally good. Seven out of eight. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to hear that it, uh, it stuck with you, too. Uh, because maybe some of the judgment comes from me just having been exposed to it for a long time since I was, you know, pretty much as early as I can remember. But I I do think it's got a lot of merit to it. Uh, It's technically impressive. 
I really like the songs. I love a lot of the songs, and I would say I like all of them. There's not really a, a sore thumb that's bad. Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe the Fat Grandma song is the weakest entry. Not the ideal entry point, but it's still, you know, it still is a cranker. Still pretty upbeat and funny. Sure. And, uh, yeah, everything that you said tracks. It's like distinct characters. I like the porcupine. Uh, just every, every time he says one of his dopey things, it, you know, it makes me laugh. Like he catches it. He's fishing on the end of the dock and he catches a boot. He says, they're really biting today. And he's got this like silly Canadian accent. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's all memorable. I'd say if you've never seen this one before, check it out. Track it down. Any other parting thoughts regarding Emmett Otter, Dan? I'm glad we've completed the circle of Jim Henson knockoff versus legitimate Jim Henson production. And it's different, right? Yeah. Different experience. Yeah, there, there's something more authentic about it. But what is next on the horizon? What comes up next on the goods? Brian, the movie I'm going to ask you to watch next is one that I really liked when I was in college and one that I am eager to rewatch for reasons that I will discuss in our next episode. And that is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. This is a 2004 film directed by Michael Gondry and starring Jim Carrey. And of note, I believe it is written by Charlie Kaufman. And I think this is one you have not seen, correct, Brian? That's right. This one has always just escaped me. It comes up from time to time. This is one that people talk about, and so I'm curious. It'll uh, fill in a gap for me. Yeah, and it stars Jim Carrey of fame because he starred in the 2009 A Christmas Carol adaptation, as well as Kate Winslet, who is of note because she starred in the 1997 film that one or two of you may have seen known as Titanic that we also discuss on this podcast. Yeah. You know, little obscure movie that you wouldn't know about without our help. It's uh, it's back up on Netflix, by the way. So of course I'm watching it again. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. We, we talked about that. We didn't have a dedicated episode for it. We semi featured it in the episode about a night to remember. Is that what it is? God, <laughs> all the stupid night movies blend together a, a night that's hard to remember when you hold it up against t97 but there you go so i think that's what we'll watch and we'll discuss brian i'm looking forward to it it's a little bit more uh widely acclaimed than some of the movies we talk about but i think it should be fun yeah definitely well i look forward to joining you again thank you listeners for joining us again hope you'll continue to do so in the future tell your friends to check us out, drop a rating and a review, all that good stuff. This is The Goods. But now that you've heard from us, let's hear from someone else. Email us a review of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas or any film we've previously discussed, and we might read yours. If we do pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's the goods film podcast at gmail.com. So we have letterboxd user with the username of Plupal Pop, P L O O P L E 
P.O.P. Plupal Pop. And this is what he or she wrote about Emmett Otter's drug band Christmas. Fuck everything. We're doing five stars. I mean, come on. I've revisited this thing pretty much every year for four decades, and it never loses any luster or magic or charm. And it's such a well-drawn and detailed world that I somehow notice new things every time. I'm just going to go ahead and move to Frogtown Hollow and Men Fences and enter talent contests for the rest of my life. That's basically where I'm at at this point. And so, Poople Pop, you are a review of the week of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas on Letterboxd, so... Uh, I really enjoyed that. I love the enthusiasm for this special. I'm glad that you found something resonant like me and Brian did. So there you go. Yeah, I like this way of doing it. That, you know, it's almost like uh, ambush appreciation of people's reviews. <laughs> it's like, we like what you wrote. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you know who we are. We're going to tell you about it and by extension, let you know about the show. But if anyone out there is listening, you're welcome to send your review to us. And there's a good chance it'll be featured if you reached out to us. So, you know, it's, the option's always there. But there's a lot of good ones out there for sure. So, yeah, it's fun. All right. Well, Dan, we got to get ready because Santa Claus is coming. So get to bed. <laughs> That's for sure. Thanks for joining me again. This was fun. We'll